welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. It's been um, a wild few weeks, and uh, I was thinking about it. I, we start off the year with Dr. Bill Doctrum, our pastor, um, preaching some amazing stuff. And then Mark Sayers, one of my heroes, the smartest person alive, I think I know, preached. And then his executive pastor, Sarah, preached. And then, and then we had Tyler from New York, from Tr- Brooklyn, and he's, he brought an amazing sermon on intercessory prayer. And then we had John and Eleanor Mumford last week. So I was like, man, it's like literally all downhill from this point forward. <laughs> <laughs> and Francis Chan in December. I'm like, what are we going to do the rest of the year? No, uh, I've been prepping for quite a few months this series called The Antichrist Church, and I teased it last week. And as I was sitting in the empowered week that we had, uh, I really was wrestling with this series for lots of reasons. And so through this last week, talking to Bill, asking for prayer and discernment, talking to our leaders, my wife, most important person that I listen to at this point, other than Jesus. Um, uh, but our, our team unanimously felt that it was not the time to do the series on Antichrist Church. So um, I felt something else stirring. And I'm going to be honest, I would way rather preach something that I've prepared for a while than do what I'm about to do. Um, and I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, but the second thing, I've, I just want to put this up there. If you at all are interested in hearing this series called the Antichrist Church, which is just a, a series through First John, where I look at what John meant by the spirit of the Antichrist being with us already. Many people think that there's this person that's going to come at the end times. It's going to, you know, woo everyone into following Jesus before, or away from Jesus before we're zapped by the rapture. Um, all of that is bad theology. It's great entertainment, but it's not biblical. And so I was going to show you through the first John um, what John meant by that. And it's basically anyone that's opposing the Messiah. So if you're interested, I'm going to do a midweek podcast Bible study, but invitation only through subscription can you get it. So you have to email this. Um, is there an email, uh, Michael? Did you come up? There's going to be on our website, so if you're interested in this like midweek podcast, you, I'm going to do it for a podcast. Sound good? So some of you are like, cool, that's fine. Most of you don't even care, but it's just fine. <clears throat> but here's why. I don't want to waste anyone's time, uh, especially that person. They're very important. Their phone's ringing. No, uh, I don't want to waste anyone's time. I, I really feel things are pressing. Um, we need to get our household in order as a church. I, I preached on Gideon a couple weeks ago. If you missed it, it's a lot of what I sense right now for our church. I, 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 I believe um, that the Lord is preparing his church for something new. This generation hasn't seen yet. And so I don't want to waste anyone's time. The men's retreat, I hate men's retreats. I'm, go, I'm leading. I'm, I'm going on it because last year was amazing. Last year, I tore two ligaments in my foot, and I'm going back. <laughs> You better go, man, all right? I had a five-month-old baby. My wife kicked me out, let me go. Like, I, there are so many reasons why you shouldn't go. You should go. We're, we're creating space for lifelong transformation. That's what that's about. I don't want to waste anyone's time on Sunday. I want our church to build something that lasts. I was thinking, I was reading scripture, and I realized um, Paul talks about being a master builder. He's architecting something, and that one day, it will be tested by fire. And anything that's not built on Jesus will be taken away. And I was thinking about this in our age of careerism in the church, in podcasts, you know, interests, consumer-oriented church. 
how much we do because it pleases people. And because you'll get a following or more money or whatever it is that whatever ego or pride or self-focused us leaders in the church have. I'm just talking about the church. And I realize that I don't want any of that. I want to build something that lasts, that has impact for eternity. Because what we are a part of lasts forever. And so I want to preach sermons that are going to bring lifelong transformation. And so as I was discerning, I felt like the Lord reminded me to go back to the basics. That we have a ton of new, our church has grown. Like there's no room in this service. We have room in the second service. You want to come at 1115, we have some room. But we're, we're filling this school up. And, and that's coming with some consequences. But one of the things that I realized is um, a lot of people are loving our church right now. That's a good thing, right? People are like, oh, the garden's so cool, this. I've never seen this. And, and I'm thinking like, that's great um, that we're growing. I think that's part of a he- healthy organisms grow. But, um, but the things that you like are done because of certain theological convictions we carry. We worship the way we worship because of certain theology, not because it's pragmatic. We do house churches because of a theology. We do gatherings on Sundays. We teach the word. We, we, we do missional outreach. We take care of the poor. We do all these things. We pray every, every, every Sunday up front and do ministry because of a theology that has shaped our church. And if there's anything that I could get back to, it would be this idea of kingdom theology. And so we're gonna do a new series called Kingdom Culture. I'm gonna slowly teach about the primary message of Jesus that influences every aspect, every inch of your life. And I want us to grab it. I want us to get it because I grew up in a church that taught um, the gospel of Jesus was about getting people on earth to heaven. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone else have that theology to come from? Let's just admit where we come from, that the... But we're all in a safe place. This is a, a, a tree of trust in here. A nice little safe garden. Tree of trust. And is this, did I just quote the movie? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that's right. Okay, um, I don't even remember what movie. We're just going to keep going. Um, but I know it's Will Ferrell. Anyways, <laughs> this theology uh, affected how I treated people. It affected my job as a Christian, I, and this is before I worked for a church, before I was educated in this, my thought was salvation was trying to get people to church to say a prayer. And that if they just say a prayer, there was a transaction that was made, and they're good until they go to heaven. And their job in, in the work of the gospel was to convince other people, mainly through arguing about hell, by the way, that was just my perspective, that they, there was a, they were going to face judgment and they needed to have the right answers to get into heaven when they die. This is such bad theology. This is not biblical theology at all. And I realized that the whole story of the Bible is not about getting people on earth to go to heaven. The whole story of the Bible is about heaven coming to earth. Jesus doesn't talk about going someplace else. He talks about that someplace else having coming here. And it manifests in his life. And it was called the kingdom. It is called the kingdom of God. And this perspective changes everything. And I want to teach about this perspective. And then we're going to do lead up to Easter. And then after Easter, we're going to jump into the Sermon on the Mount, which is how we live our life in the kingdom of God. We'll go verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. And then we'll, we'll just keep going from there. Um, but this perspective changes everything. It reorders the way things work. It's kind of like in 1616. 
when this physicist, mathematician, astronomer, and philosopher developed a theory known as heliocentrism. His name was Galileo. Have you ever heard of him? But at the time, he theorized that the earth and all the other planets revolved around a relatively stationary sun at the center of our solar system. He was considered a heretic by the Catholic Church because of this view. Because for all previous time before 1616, everyone knew there was a geocentristic solar system. The earth was the center of the solar system. All the scientists believe that. All the people in authority believe that. And so at the time when this new theory came about, it, brought, it shook the world, this paradigm, this worldview, this perspective, because it changed everything. It changed people's perspective on history, on the cre- story of creation, on the Bible. It changed perspective of science, astronomy, and physics, and so on. And he was right. And oftentimes, I think in the church, we miss the story of the Bible because we've been taught by people in authority. We've experienced the local church's theology. Some teacher or theologian or tradition has taught us something else. So I want to emphasize the story of the Bible, which is the theology of the kingdom. And the theology of kingdom changed everything for me. The kingdom is why we do what we do at the garden. And I want to teach us how to build kingdom culture because it doesn't just exist in the church. That's part of where it exists, but it's designed to be built everywhere we go. So the question I have is how do we create kingdom culture? And a culture is a set of attitudes, values, goals, um, practices, and relational boundaries. So how do we create kingdom attitude, values, goals, practices, and relational boundaries? And then how do we, how do we build this kingdom culture? How do we sh- steward this kingdom culture and sustain kingdom culture and live under the authority of the kingdom and empower the kingdom culture, not just at the garden in our church, but in our personal life, in our family life, in our dating life, in our workplace? Because that's what Jesus is after. Are you with me? You guys along for the ride? Okay, so season one, episode one of Kingdom Culture. I thought that might be helpful for you Netflix, Netflix and everything else fans. But here's what it's titled, The Good News According to Jesus. There's this word that we use in the Christian church called the gospel. Gospel. And this was first used uh, in the Hebrew language for Isaiah. It was, it was written about in the Old Testament in Hebrew. But in the Greek language, it was used by the Roman Empire first before it was written in the Bible. And the word is in Greek, euangelion, and it means good news. And it was always in reference to the announcement of some political or military victory. But what happens is the church rebrands the gospel, the the word gospel from political language revolving around Rome and the Caesars, and applies it to Jesus as this singular word to describe all of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus and everything in between. It became the word to refer to all of the things that we confess. So when people say, do you believe in the gospel? Um, they're referring to the life, message, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's, there's different perspectives on this because I heard growing up what I would call the gospel of salvation, which is believe the right things about Jesus, then you get to go somewhere else. But that was not the good news according to Jesus. So if you have a Bible, let's go to, to we're gonna look at this theme um, throughout the scriptures. The good news according to Jesus. Mark chapter one, verse 14. I'm just gonna read a bunch of verses so you can see this thematically. How are we doing, church? Are we okay? Some of you are really grieving the Antichrist church. I totally get it, me too. 
You have to forgive me. Mark 1, I just, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles uh, in, the, in the way as you walk in, or you can pick one up at the welcome booth. Yeah, I want you to have a Bible. We're reading the Bible as a church. We're in this reading plan online. If you're not reading along with us, jump in. It's really amazing to be on the same page. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming, there it is, the good news, the gospel of God. And this was his message. So this is Mark's summary. Ready? This is Mark's summary of all of Jesus' teaching in one sentence. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. One verse. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Go to Matthew chapter 4. So go left. Matthew 4. I don't hear any Bibles turning. That's cool. So type it in. Be loud with that paper. Come on. Some good paper right there. Mark 4, it's okay. Matthew 4, verse 23. Here's here's a summary of Jesus' whole ministry and teaching in Matthew's gospel. So this is right before the Sermon on the Mount. And look what it says, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them all. Large crowds followed from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and regions across the Jordan followed him. So there it is. Here's Jesus' summer. He's teaching in the synagogue. He's proclaiming or preaching the kingdom of God, and then he's demonstrating the kingdom of God in his ministry. Go to Luke chapter 8. Luke, Luke, Luke. 305. 305. So Luke chapter 8. Do you know what 305? 305 days until the next Star Wars film comes out. Just so you know, in case you're counting. I know I was. Some of you knew, but you were ashamed. Don't be ashamed. There's no condemnation for those who are Star Wars lovers. See how I did that? That's good. Luke chapter 8, I think it is. Verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. There it is. Proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. Okay, you get it. But let's just read this for fun. I want to show you something so cool. This is just a side note. The 12 were with him. And also some women. Amen. Who had been cured of evil diseases, uh, evil spirits and diseases. Mary, uh, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. Listen to this. These women were helping to support them. All the other men out of their own means. Can I just get an amen from all the ladies? Can I get an amen from the brothers? Because this is so revolutionary. This is a complete side note. I don't have time to go into it, but I need to make this point. Luke's gospel is so politically charged that he regularly includes these moments that just pull down the patriarch society of its time and the, the Caesar and the politics. Women listed in this would be considered, according to Luke, as disciples of Jesus. Rabbis were not allowed to teach women, even if they had children who were girls. They were excluded from being discipled, but Jesus included women as disciples. It's all over the place. I just want to let you know that. So there you go, Luke chapter 8. Let's go Acts chapter 1. 
Acts chapter 1. How are we doing on time? We're just going to keep going. I don't hear any Bibles flipping. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read through this quickly. It says this. In my former book, Theophilus, Luke is the former book. The gospel according to Luke. I wrote all about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering on the cross, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Are you guys getting sick of this yet? Or maybe you're realizing you've missed something like I did. That the gospel is, according to Jesus, has something to do with the kingdom of God. And that every single gospel writer, including John, which we'll look at separately because he uses a phrase, eternal life. Why would John use eternal life? Because he was writing to the Greeks. They had no framework in their Hebrew, of a Hebrew mind of a kingdom of God. They worshiped all sorts of gods. So he had to change the language to make sense to the audience who was reading his work. Is that all right? How are we doing? So, but it's, the book of Acts starts with Jesus teaching the kingdom of God to his apostles. And go to the last chapter in the book of Acts. And I just want to show you the very last verse in the last chapter of the book of Acts, which is recording the early church movement from Jesus being ascended from uh, death, or sorry, resurrected from death before he ascends, he teaches the kingdom of God. Then we get this guy, the apostle Paul, who was a Jew of Jews, who's now in Rome, and it says this in verse 30, for two whole years Paul stayed there in Rome, is in his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom, are we going to participate ever in this story? <laughs> in the kingdom of God and taught people about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Mark records it, Matthew records it, Luke records it, and the book of Acts records it. It begins with Jesus proclaiming this message on the kingdom of God. Acts, he ascends, he says, go and do this. And the book of Acts ends with the gospel of the kingdom of God at the center of the Roman Empire through Paul proclaiming the kingdom without fear or hindrance. How is that for Christian good news? The good news has something to do with the kingdom of God, which we'll answer in a second. And the kingdom of God, though, first, you need to understand, is an announcement. It's always proclaimed. It's not just discussed. It's not just something that you listen to like a podcast and say, oh, that was good. It's declarative. It is an announcement about something that's taking place in history. N.T. Wright has this great description. I think some of you will chuckle at his illustration. Check this out. <clears throat> he says this. Imagine what it would be like in the United States today if without an election or any other official mechanism for changing the government, someone were to go on a national radio station or television and announce that there was now a new president. From today onward, says the announcer, we have a new ruler. We're under new government. Hallelujah. It's all going to be different. That's not only exciting talk, it's fighting talk. It's treason. By what right is this man saying this? How does he think he'll get away with this? What exactly does he mean anyway? An announcement like this is simply a proclamation. It's this isn't simply a proclamation. It's the start of a campaign. When a regime is already in power and is simply transferring that power to the next person in line, you just announce that it's happening. But if you make that announcement while someone else appears to be in charge, 
you are saying, in effect, the campaign starts here. So what did Jesus mean? What sort of campaign could this have been? Those are the questions we can be sure in his hearers' minds. Frustratingly, for us and them, Jesus' answer to what exactly does he mean seems to have been partly wait and see. But in the meantime, he was still demonstrating what it meant up close and personal. His healings and celebrations were part of the meaning of God becoming king. Jesus' good news has something to do about the kingdom of God. So before we talk about what the meaning of the kingdom of God is, let me first describe to you what kingdom is. What a kingdom is. So pay attention real quick. I'm going to quote someone else really smarter than me, Dallas Willard. So to gain understanding, I just need you to stay with me. I want you to get this principle and we'll make it practical. To gain a deeper understanding of our eternal kind of life in God's present kingdom, we must be sure to understand what a kingdom is. Every last one of us has a kingdom or queendom or a government, a realm that is uniquely our own where our choice determines what happens. Our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we genuinely have the say over is in our kingdom. And our having the say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Wood, an extraordinary book, one of my favorites, you should read it. In other words, we all have influence over stuff. And what we have direct influence over is essentially our kingdom, our little tiny kingdom or queendom is what he'll say. My kingdom is the area of my life where I'm in charge. Does that make sense? So the area of your life where you're in charge, my body, my personal habits, my thoughts, my daily routines, my home. I say home, but obviously that's very limited considering I'm married to someone who's way more powerful in our kingdom than me. And all the ladies said, amen. Because if I say I'm going to buy this picture and hang it, odds are it doesn't fit where it should. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or if I say, or like, so for example, my wife has a little more authority in our kingdom. There's nothing wrong with this. But if she buys a lamp, it's like give a mouse a cookie. She's going to buy a new rug, guaranteed. (laughs) Eventually, it's a new table and a couch. Does anyone else know what I'm talking about, the power of the lamp? Anyway, okay, so that's just us, okay. It's where you have direct range and oversight. I have, I have influence over when I go to sleep or when I wake up, sometimes. I have a kid, so that's affected by the time I wake. So you all have a little kingdom, your jobs, your family, your relationships. These are areas of life that you have influence. So what is God's kingdom? So this is what Dallas Willard says. God's own kingdom or rule is the range of his effective will where what he wants done is done. The person of God himself and the action of his will are the organizing principles of his kingdom. But everything that obeys those principles, whether by nature or by choice, is within his kingdom. So God's kingdom is God's sovereign rule and reign. God's kingdom is the intersection of God's desire for life being manifested and experienced the way it was intended to be in the first place. Let me say that again. So this is how I'm understanding it. God's kingdom is the intersection of God's desire for life being manifested and experienced the way it was intended to be in the first place. God's kingdom is what life would look like if God was in charge. Now just pause for a moment. Think about what your life would look like if he was in charge. Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, no. 
uh-uh. And that has a lot to do with a lot of things. It has to do with your perspective of life and it has to do with your perspective of God. A lot of people don't want God in charge because they think he's angry, judgmental, disinterested, waiting for you guys to mess up so he can punish you, which is an inaccurate view of God, which we'll talk about another time. Others of you like autonomy and freedom, even though it's causing all sorts of pain and conflict within your own life. But if God was in charge of your life, there'd be all sorts of good, goodness and beautiful and, and all sorts of amazing things, which we'll talk about. I want to get there. But um, what Jesus went around announcing then was something like this. Good news. God is now in charge. And this is what it's going to look like from here on out. That's the message he was announcing. So what does it mean for God to be in charge today? What does it mean for him to be in charge of your life? Now, before I touch on this, I just want to highlight and address a major theological issue that most of us have, whether we know this or not. When I say that God's in charge, what I mean is having power and authority over something. I don't mean he's in control, where God has determined the outcomes. You might say, well, uh, isn't God in charge of everything? And the answer to that question is no, obviously not. Because if he were in charge of everything, there would be no hunger, there would be no human trafficking, there would be no genocide, there would be no racism, there would be no suicide, depression, and anxiety. These are all realities, places, people, and systems that have failed to come under his rule fully. How you doing? So do you see how, do you see how this theology shapes every inch of your life? And this is why we have to get it Right? Because if you don't believe, if you believe God's in control and he's determined the outcomes, why do you need to pray? But if you realize actually he's been looking for partners to partner with and he's looking to change the events of history through prayer in partnership with you through your prayer, then you might pray a little more fervently. Would you agree? Or if crisis comes, sickness comes over and over again to your household, you might think, oh, it's just sickness, or maybe it's spiritual warfare. They come at the really coincidental times, don't they? So maybe it's a bit of both. I'm not going to over-spiritualize it, but you might address your lifestyle appropriately so. Right? So if, if, if God causes the things to happen, that's not a God I want to worship. I'm going to be honest. That's how I feel. If he caused the genocide of the Holocaust in World War II, I don't want to worship that God. Now, some of you, this is really hard to understand, but we'll get through this because this is part of what Jesus brings us into. This is also why we pray in Scripture, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The assumption is there are places on earth where his will and kingdom are not reality yet. So we partner with him in establishing that reign of God. And we also have to recognize there are opposing kingdoms to the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of the world, which we'll talk about the two later on. But the point is, there is a kingdom to be established. It's his kingdom. And what does it look like for him to be in charge? Well, before I keep going, let me just give you an illustration. This is probably the most helpful. I've already used it at Easter. Um, but when Amos was like four months old, my wife desperately needed to get out. And I said, hey, why don't you go out with your friends and I will put both kids down. And I was just immediately trying to bring that back, okay? Because at the time, Amos only nursed. He only let mommy put him down and she had the thing on lockdown. 
And so I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And then um, she takes off and she gave me the long list of what to look for with, you know, Amos getting tired. He'll give you some clues. So pay attention, give him a bottle, rock him, sing him the song. You have to sing it like this, sing it twice, whatever it was. Shut the lights off, put the sound machine on. Okay, so I'm reading the storybook Bible, the Jesus storybook Bible to Ezra with Amos in my arms. I'm getting the, uh, the clues from Amos that he's tired. While I'm reading the Bible, the, just so you know, this is all fact. I was actually reading the story about Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. Okay, so just that's important. So I say to Ezra, my four-year-old, hey, bud, I'm gonna put Amos down. I'll be right back. Stay here and play. I'll come back. He immediately protested. So as I shut the door behind, let the little children come to me, he's getting frustrated in the room. And he, I told him he has to be quiet. So I go into the other room. I do the thing. I give him a bottle. He's never taken a bottle at this time. This is Amos. I'm giving him a bottle. He's protesting. He knows it's fake. He wants the real thing. And then I'm like, oh, he's not hungry. I put the bottle down. I do what Alex says. I shut the lights off. I put the sound machine on. He begins to protest, looking for mommy's hair. He knows I'm not mommy. Where the heck is mommy? Pushing me away like doing kung fu at four months old and that's when he starts crying Ezra comes running in like a good brother to rescue his his brother from harm I shut the door on Ezra's foot he begins to cry let the little children come to me shut the door put Amos down screaming hysterically I'm like let's go Ezra Ezra's crying as I take him in bed Ezra with big tears in his eyes says to me life is hard without mommy And it's true, not, not so much anymore. I've got it down, I can do it, she can go. At that time, there's something about my wife's presence that changed how bedtime routine went. It wasn't just a set of hands to help. She was, is mama. She knew how to nurture Amos and it worked out. It was like I didn't realize how much she did until she was gone. And I think the good news that Jesus knows the story of creation is the story of you being created to live in loving relationship with God, yourself, and others. And that has been distorted since Genesis chapter three. So when Jesus comes back to the scene and says, good news, God is now in charge. He's announcing something that has an invitation to it. You can now experience life the way it was intended to be in the first place. This life of the garden, restored, through Jesus' life, message, mission, death, and resurrection. And it starts with relationship to Jesus. And what he does is he proclaims this, and he says it's, it's available to everyone, and he announces it, but then he, he demonstrates it through the way he heals, the way he restores, the way he includes, the way he lives simply, the way he lives generously, the way he says it's all about um, what God's doing and his father's love. There's so many things, but then he makes it an invitation. So the good news to Jesus is an invitation to experience life the way God intended it to be in the first place. He doesn't come and say, hey, believe in me so you can go someplace else when you die. He says, believe in me and draw from my infinite resources of heaven here and now, not for spiritual use, but for everyday ordinary life. That's the kingdom. It's not about how this is gonna change your prayer life, although it does. It's how it changes your parenting. It's not about, oh, how it changes our Bible studies. No, it's, it, it's how you interact with people at work. That's what this theology does if you let it. That's what the gospel does if you let it. How are we doing? This is how it was intended to be. It's an announcement back to 
the garden. Can I tease out a couple more thoughts that will, will keep you on your seats until the next time? And this is season one, episode one, so I need to go big, right? That's what they do. Go big, they get your attention, and then it's like six episodes of exhaust. You're like, where is this going? And then like two episodes before the end, it finally turns the corner, and then it's like, see, you gotta wait for season two. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Obviously, you know what I'm addicted to. So, um, great storytelling. So, the kingdom of God is this invitation back to the garden. So, Let's go to the very end of the Bible. I want to show you this theme. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22 is the last book of the New Testament. It's the last book of the Bible. And it's this, this many people think it's apocalyptic. So it's, what it uses is imagery and metaphor and illustration to, uh, and poetry to capture your imagination. Okay, this is not literal. Many people try to literally read it, and it's not a literal device, not a, not, it's not good biblical exegesis to read Revelation literally. You have to read it in its genre for its purpose. But there are two chapters at the end, and the first part is a bit about what's going on contextually, and it's this beautiful metaphor of warfare that's going on. It has to do with Jesus' birth. It has to do with um, all sorts of things with the, the Roman Empire at its time. It has to do with the beast. What's the beast? It's the emperor. And, and it has to do with taking on the mark of the beast. Like you're going to have, what's the mark of the beast? Well, your mind and your, your actions of life have been corrupted by this capitalistic military machine that desires worship. That's the Caesar. It's the cult of Caesar. But you get to the end and it's this promise of what's gonna happen. There's a new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. And this is a description, 22, verse 22, verse one. Chapter 22, verse one. It says, Eden restored, the garden of Eden restored. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the, of the city. So this is tying you to Ezekiel. It's tying you to Genesis chapter two. On each side of the river stood a tree of life, Genesis chapter one and two, bearing 12 crops of fruit. It has to do with Israel. It has to do with God's completion, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. These are not literal trees that heal nations. This is all imagery of what God's doing. Aloe vera plant. No, it's not an aloe vera plant. <laughs> it's not going to sell you doTERRA or Young Living, Okay. <laughs> Great, but that's not the point. No longer, listen, this is, who's it referring to, okay? It's referring to servants. No longer will there be any curse. Genesis 3 is reversed. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. So he's, now he refers to the servants serving him. So this is the church, okay? Those that have come to faith and practice the way of Jesus. Listen to what it says about the church. I want you to pay attention. This is so important for you getting it. They will see his face, ties us to Exodus and Moses, seeing God face to face. And his name will be on their foreheads as opposed to the mark of the beast being on the foreheads. So it's a reversal that they've been committed to the way of God. It's also taking you to Deuteronomy and the Shema prayer, which is also an illusion about the mark of the beast, which the Shema prayer is the famous G uh, prayer to the Jews. It is a summary of all belief. Hear, O God, the Lord our God uh, is one. That whole prayer, it says, write this on your, your, keep this on your head, bind this on your hands and your forehead. That's what the mark of the beast was re reversing. It was challenging that. And here it says the name of the lamb will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be, there, uh, they will not need the light of a lamp 
or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they, again, who are they referring to? Will reign forever and ever. Who's going to reign? Interesting, right? The word reign is in, in this passage is the same word for kingdom. And the word reign means to rule, to govern, to steward. Who will reign forever and ever? You. Do you know that? Now go to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. So you're like, wow, that's news to me. Oh, interesting. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule, which is the Hebrew word. Will you go to that next slide and I'll come back to reading this? The Hebrew word for rule is to exercise, is to reign, to govern, and steward. And it goes on to say that you'll rule over all the animals. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it, steward it, and rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the, over every living creature that moves along the ground. There it is again twice in those two passages. If you wanted to emphasize something, you would say it multiple times. You were designed to live in the image and likeness of God. You were created to rule and reign in partnership with God. You were created to rule. And the more you become like Jesus, the more you submit to his rule, his kingdom and his way, the more you become the person you were created to be in the first place. And that has radical implications for everyday ordinary life. But one thing for certain is that means you were built for power. But what I see over the church is insecurity, fear, doubt, uncertainty of where we fit with God. And the Genesis 1 says you were built to rule. Revelation 22 says you will rule forever. Now this is Romans chapter 8 you are co-heirs with Christ. This is so central to understanding the narrative of the Bible, yet we miss it. Why? We're trying to convince people that they need to believe in the right things to go someplace else. Maybe. We're too busy worrying about all sorts of things that we don't recognize the power that is already within us when we come under his lordship. You see, I want to talk about all this. I want to tease out what identity means. Because at some point, we either have to accept who we are or not. We either have to accept we're built to reign with God and that we have access to infinite resources of heaven, that God wants to build his kingdom here and now and his rule and reign to go places. And wherever you go, he wants to bring his power and authority with you, through you, because that's what it was like in Genesis 1. And that's, gonna, that's how it's gonna be for the rest of eternity, living in partnership with God, face-to-face, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is ushered by the, the, the age of the Spirit. All of this is part of this kingdom theology, and it's too wonderful to just do a couple of sermons on. We need to, we need to restructure because the good news has, some, has nothing to do with what happens when we die. It has everything to do with what's happening here and now. I have so many great quotes. I'm gonna skip all of these great quotes. C.S. Lewis, Dallas Willard, yeah, yeah. N.T. Wright, yeah. <clears throat> but what you need to know and what I'm trying to get at is this, this theology is about 
a mother of three learning to breathe the kingdom air as she parents her children with the power of God in ordinary time and place. It's about a restaurant manager stewarding her life to empower God's kingdom and reign in her nine to five at California Pizza Kitchen. It's about sales rep for a credit card processing company expanding the father's heart to clients and friends 24 seven. It's about businessmen and women investing earthly wealth and resources in such a way that eternity is affected by its outcomes. That's what this is about. And this changes everything. And if you don't get it, then you're going to miss it. The good news, according to Jesus, season one, episode one. So how do we respond? And I want to end with this. The Bible uses this phrase, Jesus is Lord. Okay. Now that was used only for Caesar. The only Lord in the Roman Empire at the time it was written was Caesar. And so when, when the Christians say Jesus is Lord, at the same time, they're saying Caesar is not. You see, when we announce the kingdom of God, we don't, we're not living, quote unquote, in a kingdom right now. But at that time, there was a kingdom and it had a different king. So when we say, oh, the kingdom of God is here and good news and Jesus is Lord, that is a direct assault against the kingdom of the, of the worlds. And what people had to do is decide, well, who is Lord? Caesar or Jesus? Which kingdom will I live in? The way of the world or Satan or the way of God? And this way is upside down because the way you make it ahead is by serving the least of these. The way you get more is by giving everything you have away. The way, you, learn, uh, the way you, 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 you work with each other is by love, by loving each other, by forgiving one another, by not walking with bitterness, by not having any offense in your system. You're unoffendable. And whenever you are persecuted, you bless and you pray. I mean, it's so upside down, it's crazy. But that's how we're gonna defeat the empire. But the question I have for you, before you applaud, and please don't applaud, but I, I have a serious question. Because we can't honestly say Jesus is Lord and worship the other Lord. We can't honestly say I'm in the kingdom of God and still live as if, as if the other kingdom is reigning in our life. And it is. Oh, I love the sermons on Sunday. It's so good. I don't want to hear that again. Go and live the sermon. Go and live the kingdom. And the problem with talking about kingdom, this is what I realized recently, and what I think is a necessary invitation for the, where we're going as a church, if we're gonna build something, is this. We hate authority. Right? You, we, you hate it as much as me. I hate authority. We hate authority. Millennials, more than any other generation. Although I, that's, that's not true because there was the whole hippie movement. So there you go. So it's been, it's in our blood, right? So we, we are groomed to question, despise, not live. We want choice. We want autonomy. We want our dependence. But as Christians, we have to learn to love authority. We have to learn to submit. What? Submit? No. I hate that word. You hate it. I believe the Lord is asking our church to recognize the authority of Jesus to submit to his lordship and to recognize spiritual authority and submit to spiritual authority. I don't even know what that means, honestly. This is a word I've been carrying for a while, 
But I think until we recognize that Jesus is Lord and come under his lordship and what that means today and learn how to live under the authority of Jesus and, the, and all the things associated with it, we're not gonna get into our inheritance here and now. So I wanna invite you to submit to Jesus as your Lord. Not some supernatural, I mean, is he Lord of your finances? Is he Lord of your dating level, of your sexuality, of your parenting? Is he Lord of your dream or dreams? Is he Lord of your 401k, or 401k, cane, 401k, 401k, it's a new thing, you should invest. Um, <laughs> your education, your career, your relationships, you see, the point we're gonna get at is later on in the message, the same, Jesus will say, repent and believe, and he's gonna say, Re- reconstruct your entire life around the confession that I'm Lord and that the kingdom of God is breaking. And so I wanna invite you to respond by saying Jesus is Lord with your life and examine your life and give up anything else. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.